On the last episode of Lessons from Transformative Leaders, we learned about FDR's early life, from his time as a child all the way up to when he was running for vice president. In that time period, we saw Franklin grow into a confident young man through Groton and Harvard. After that time period, he grew into almost like an angsty teenager inside the state senate. And finally, Josephus Daniels cut him down and taught him how to play politics and to be more humble. All this growth propelled him to front and center on the political stage. Franklin was starting to look more like a person who could be president and be right in thinking that. So far, Franklin's career had been nothing but a string of successes. The people he worked with loved him, and he did a great job of motivating everyone towards his vision. By the end, though, even Franklin, when posed this question, would have probably said he was not ready to become president at this stage. In one of his speeches, Franklin said that a president must have, quote, the quality of soul which makes a man loved by little children, by dumb animals, that quality of soul which makes him a strong help to those in sorrow or trouble, that quality which makes him not merely admired but loved by all the people, the quality of sympathetic understanding of the human heart, of real interest in one's fellow man. End quote. Franklin did not have that quality of soul yet. He was still a little too tall for his britches. However, he would soon go through a harrowing crucible where Franklin would either grow into that quality of soul or fall into historical obscurity. So, what did Franklin do? Let's dive into the second part of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's life. One summer's day in Maine, Franklin woke up feeling like something was off. Something in his body just felt amiss. So Franklin took this as a sign that he needed to get out and enjoy the beautiful warm day to shake it off. Thinking that the fresh sea air would rejuvenate his body, he started off on a nice sail with Eleanor and his two sons. Franklin cut through the waves around Cabobello with ease. But not even the salted air would make Franklin feel better. When they docked back at the house, Franklin challenged his two sons to a foot race to a nearby swimming area, the Bay of Fundy. Franklin sped his way to the bay. Family friends had described Franklin as a great stag whenever he ran, and the great stag easily dominated the foot race. But even diving into the waters did not make Franklin feel at ease. Something was still wrong. Once at home, Franklin slumped into a chair, feeling frustrated that on this gorgeous day, after a long stint in Washington, that he could not relax and get comfortable. Worst of all, he somehow had lost all his energy to even undress himself. Then, a sinister chill started to creep down his spine. The chill whispered, to Franklin to go to bed. In the next morning, when Franklin attempted to rise, his legs gave out underneath him. 
To make matters worse, he started running a 102 fever. Eleanor called the doctor to check Franklin out, and the nearby country doctor diagnosed that Franklin was just suffering from a severe cold. However, the next day when the doctor returned, Franklin had lost the power to move anything from his legs down. The great stag was paralyzed. Immediately, the family and Lewis Howe, Franklin's closest friend and advisor, requested for another doctor to come in to check on Franklin. But the other doctor, again, misdiagnosed Franklin. So he ordered his muscles to be massaged, but that did not help at all. Franklin's eyesight was starting to give out, and he had started to lose all control of his bodily functions. Finally, at a loss, they called on a specialist, who accurately diagnosed his condition as poliomyelitis. The doctor said that Franklin was on the knife's edge between regaining his most important muscles or complete paralysis. Just like his father passing away, Franklin's life was turned upside down. The once great stag was looking at paralysis in the face. He might never run or sail the same way again. His political dreams were in jeopardy. How was he supposed to deliver a speech? How was he supposed to become president and inspire a whole nation in a wheelchair? In the face of all this bad news, Franklin didn't flinch. Eleanor wrote that he was completely calm. She said that he was like an iceberg. There was never the slightest emotion that was allowed to show. He was eventually checked into a hospital, but things still looked grim. His back and shoulders were responsive, whereas his legs were all quiet. The doctor said that Franklin was not improving, and Eleanor and Lewis believed that he would never walk again. Yet, Franklin was displaying that optimistic attitude you saw last episode. He was writing his friends that he'd be upright in no time, and that'd be back out on the golf course soon. The doctors started to worry that Franklin was being delusional, but they just didn't know Franklin. But there is a significant change in the way Franklin used his optimism compared to Groton when he was friendless and when his father passed away. Franklin's optimism not only helped him through this dark time, but this time he used it to help his family and friends cope with the horrifying reality of polio. During this time, Franklin exhibited an amazing ability to make people feel at ease, even in the face of tragedy. He immediately set about normalizing his condition. He would show his children his withered legs and teach them the anatomical names of the muscles affected. When Christmas came, he insisted on being the one to carve the turkey and even help with setting up the tree. James, one of Franklin's sons, said that Franklin kept everyone at ease. He made it possible for everyone to participate in regular Christmas activities without feeling guilt or sadness. Even though Franklin was himself dealing with a major crisis, he focused on helping others deal with it. But underneath all that positivity, enormously laid an iron will. Even though his body was essentially broken, Franklin would mend it by pounding it against the anvil of exercise. Franklin, with the help of a trained physiotherapist, started an exercise regimen to rebuild himself. It was no easy task, 
Usually, the exercises were so physically and mentally excruciating that people only did them three days a week. However, Franklin was determined to get back to his normal life, so he opted to do them every day. Nothing could stop him. Slowly, Franklin would rebuild his upper body. Grueling day after grueling day, he improved. Once he had enough upper body strength, he would ask to be thrown on the library floor, where he would crawl around the floor to gain more functional strength. Eventually, he would pull himself up the stairs. For those who listened to the episode on Fabius Maximus, Franklin was treating each inch of ground he could propel himself across as a small win. He focused on ensuring that he could do all the small things before taking on the challenge of standing. Franklin knew that he couldn't lay in bed waiting for his muscles to come back. He would have to struggle and fight for each and every inch. And with each inch, Franklin's mental toughness and physical features were improving. He went from not being able to sit up to regaining all his upper body strength. However, doctors still believed his legs would never recover. Yet, to say Franklin handled this all on his own would be an injustice to Eleanor and Lewis Howe. Eleanor and Howe both enabled Franklin to focus on his recovery, and in turn, Franklin enabled them to keep up Franklin's political momentum. Eleanor ensured that in the home of Franklin, he would never be treated as an invalid. She would also use her advocacy in the League of Women Voters to further Franklin and the Democrats' cause. And while Franklin was focusing on rebuilding himself, Howe was working tirelessly to ensure that when Franklin was back, there would be a political life for him to return to. So he planted stories of Franklin's immense recovery and how he'll be back in no time. In addition, he wrote to all Franklin's friends, updating them on how Franklin would be back soon enough. Most of all, whenever Franklin started feeling down and losing faith in his exercises, Eleanor and Howe were there to encourage him and get him back up on the horse. However, their version of encouragement was a little rougher than what we consider it today. In all, Franklin was empowering others around him so he could focus on the main crisis at hand. However, even with the positivity, the iron will, In the encouragement, progress was painfully slow for his legs. Months would go by, and he could still barely handle walking in the metal braces and crutches. Every afternoon, he struggled up his driveway. Inch by inch, though, Franklin made progress. And soon, that progress would be put to the test. In a show of his progress, Franklin wanted to walk into the offices of Fidelity and Deposit a bank where he had a symbolic position at. Once the car pulled up and the door opened, Franklin stared at the strenuous ordeal in front of him. He had to make it to the elevator, a feat which would have been simple a year earlier, but now it would push Franklin to his limits. He hoisted himself up with his crutches and braces. Step by step, he made it across the sidewalk. But the most treacherous valley laid before him, marble floors. Drenched in sweat, he pounded his way across the sleek floor, and suddenly he started losing grip with his crutches. With a great crash, Franklin was on the ground, helpless. 
onlookers rushed in to ensure that he was okay. But before they could help, Franklin was sitting upright, saying, quote, There's nothing to worry about. We'll all get out of this all right. Give me a hand. End quote. With his feet back under him and his hat on his head, Franklin continued down the marble valley and made it to the elevator. He had almost flawlessly conquered the marble. And even though he had fallen, he had managed to pull himself back up and pushed onward. Even though Franklin wished to return to politics in his normal life, he realized he needed some rest and relaxation. And Franklin's version of rest and relaxation was a frat boy's pipe dream. Him and his boys rented a 60-foot houseboat to live on for several months around the Florida Keys. The boat's official name was Wiana II, but I think the floating Las Vegas or the party barge are better names for it. Everyone except Franklin began the morning with a casual skinny dip, and like mighty pirates, rum flowed endlessly. Jokes aside, Franklin's voyage on the party barge did wonders for his health. Without the stress of New York politics, people said he looked 10 years younger. However, the effects of the party barge were short-lived. After their voyage was over, the day-to-day of New York swallowed him up whole. When he went to visit his doctor for another examination, the news was bleak. The doctor said that while he was handling himself better than ever, his legs still showed no sign of improvement. He thought that Franklin had reached the end of his road to recovery. But Franklin, with his optimism, ignored the doctor and continued to try to improve himself. During his time in the Keys, Franklin discovered how much the warm ocean waters made him feel better. Maybe he just also really missed the party barge days. But regardless, he bought his own houseboat. However, this houseboat made the party barge seem like a boat fit for a queen. On this boat, the paint was peeling. And if you look at pictures of it, it kind of looks like someone slapped a mobile home on top of a boat. And as a gift to christen the party barge 2.0, Howe gave Franklin a custom log book with the name of Log of the Houseboat Laruco, being a more or less truthful account of what happened. Expurgated for the very young. Franklin loved the party barge 2.0. It helped him cope with the recent news from the doctor. People said that he was so depressed on some days that he couldn't pull himself out of bed until 12. But his houseboat helped him relax his mind and get more comfortable with his body. And eventually, after a final cruise in 1926, Franklin had decided he had enough. He attempted to sell the boat, until the boat was destroyed by a hurricane, never to be partied upon again. But before that disastrous day, in 1924, Franklin was asked to be the chairman of Al Smith's presidential campaign. Franklin wasn't expected to do much work, but his name and reputation would help carry Al Smith. But that doesn't mean Franklin sat around and did nothing. He worked hard to promote Smith's campaign. However, soon Franklin would be tested when Smith's chosen order to nominate him at the Democratic Convention passed away. And right before the convention, Franklin was picked to give the speech. A little resistant at first, but then Franklin agreed to do it. The convention would catapult Franklin into new heights of political standing. On June 24th, the convention began at Madison Square Garden. Franklin was met with thunderous applause every day he came into the garden. In the 26th, 
with his big day. Saying the speech was the most easy part for Franklin. The much, much more difficult part was Franklin's walk to the podium. He would be walking alone with only his crutches to support him. A family friend wrote of how much Franklin prepared for this moment. He had taped off the exact distance and struggled day after day. However, that practice still wouldn't put Franklin's mind at ease. And his son James began the walk to the stage, like an iceberg, was displaying his usual confidence. But below the surface, there is a strong tenseness. Franklin stared ahead at the rostrum from the side of the stage. A once easy, short walk for Franklin was now like a walk through the valley of death. Franklin would be walking alone. The last time he attempted this in public, he had ended up on the ground, helpless. But this time, the stakes would be higher. One slip could ruin the political stock he had been rebuilding. One slip and was back to square one. As Franklin's crutch pattered on the stage, the whole convention grew dead silent. But in that silence, Franklin willed his way to the podium. He fought and struggled for every inch of ground, ignoring the pain. Some said it seemed like an hour because of how tense the convention was. But regardless, Franklin made it to the podium. Once the podium, the entire convention erupted. A thunderous sound of clapping and cheering seemed to tear apart the Madison Square Garden. For three straight minutes, the convention boomed. They were all in complete awe and disbelief with what they had just saw. And for 34 minutes, Franklin commanded the convention. At the end of the speech, the garden was once again shaking at its foundations. A sort of crazed atmosphere overtook all the Democratic delegates. For more than an hour, they paraded cheering for Al Smith. Yet, while I thought of how Franklin would get to the stage, no one had thought of how he was supposed to get off. So Franklin was just kind of awkwardly standing there, gripping the podium, while the mob celebrated around him. He was like the kid who was left to hold the spot in line at the grocery store while his parents grabbed one last thing, praying that someone would come and get him. And eventually, two friends rushed in to grab Franklin, and he was placed in a wheelchair to escape the mob that was encircling. Once safe at home, Franklin told his friends three simple words. I did it. This phrase means so much more then he just gave a successful political speech for his friend. It goes much, much deeper than that. In that speech, Franklin had publicly conquered polio. It might have taken his ability to walk. That's all Franklin let it take from him. In order to conquer polio, Franklin had to work months, spending blood, sweat, and tears. When he wasn't working, he had to display positivity to carry his family through this crucible. With that positivity, he made them feel at ease and normalized his disability to make them feel guilt-free about living their normal lives. The worth ethic, positivity, and normalizing are three key traits Franklin used to conquer polio. Once he had mastered those, he would then use them to help other victims of polio.
In South Georgia, there are mineral springs. And a friend suggested Franklin to go down there because it might help him rejuvenate his body a bit. And once at the springs, Franklin immediately fell in love with the place. He said he felt his toes for the first time in years. More importantly, at the springs, he saw an opportunity to help those who might not have the money or support he had had in his battle with polio and help them fight their polio. So he bought the Mineral Springs and built a rehabilitation center there. As head of the springs, Franklin took over nearly every detail. He brought in great doctors, nurses, and physical education graduates to help him run the place. Even though he lacked a medical degree, Franklin referred to himself as Old Dr. Roosevelt at Warm Springs. Unlike his party barge investment, Warm Springs was built for helping others with their polio struggle. In fact, when his patients were too poor to come to the center, there was an aid fund which Franklin established to help them afford it. When the fund ran out, Franklin personally paid for their expenses. In addition to treating his patients well, he was beloved by his Georgian neighbors. One farmer said that he could make friends with someone with no education, but also talk to the most educated person. He could talk about anything. Franklin also observed and understood the plights of his neighbors too. In Gene Smith's biography on FDR, he wrote that, quote, Franklin learned what it meant to be without electricity and running water, for children to be without shoes and adequate clothing, for a simple grade school education to be beyond the reach of many who lived in the hard scrabble backwoods. End quote. Warm Springs was another place Franklin would learn and grow. It was a place which set him up for his next step on his long path, the governorship of New York. The political climate in 1928 was the same scene as 1924. Al Smith would be the Democratic favorite, and Franklin would help him by delivering a nominating speech and getting the delegates to vote for Smith. There is one key difference with Franklin's speech this time, though. Instead of catering it to the thousands in the convention, he catered it to the millions sitting at home listening on the radio. Always willing to try something new, Franklin was venturing out into unknown territory. The radio required much different writing and oratory skills than a typical campaign speech. And when his time to speak came, he absolutely crushed it. In the following year, just like when he was kidnapped to the police picnic to make his first ever political speech, he was dragged against his will into the nomination for the governor of New York. Once nominated, there is no doubt around whether he would win, and win he did by 25,000 votes. Franklin was one step closer to the presidency. Franklin's path was difficult, but filled with growth. He was not the same man as the days where he had been known as an awfully mean cuss and busy calling Josephus Daniels a fuddy-duddy. His quality of soul had changed. Which brings us back to the quote in the beginning. As a refresher, Franklin said that a great president must have, quote, the quality of soul which makes him a man loved by children, by dumb animals. That quality of soul which makes him a strong help to those in sorrow or trouble. That quality 
which makes him not merely admired, but loved by all the people. The quality of sympathetic understanding of the human heart, of real interest in one's fellow man. End quote. It took him a while to get there, but Franklin finally had this quality of soul. He learned how to be loved by the lowest of lows and the highest of highs in his time at Warm Springs. His battle with polio propelled him to a position where it could help those depressed or troubled with their polio through Warm Springs. His perseverance to conquer polio made him admired by all, as showcased when he gave his first nomination speech in 1924 when the crowd erupted. Both Warm Springs and polio also gave him a complete understanding of the human heart, because now he knew real suffering and saw how less fortunate people lived in Georgia. Even though he was born wealthy and entitled, Warm Springs and polio allowed him to understand and relate to the heart of the common man. And finally, as we'll see next episode, a great leader must inspire hope. A hope that even during the darkest hours, the world can rebuild. A hope that inspires others to overcome hardship. Franklin's road had been long and potted with struggle, but he grew from that into a person whose soul was fit to lead a nation. Thank you.